There was no way um, I could ever repay all the loans. You know, even with your properties full, the banks would reappraise it and they would call you up and say, hey, you need to right size this loan. We need half a million dollars. And so it, I really had a thought at one time that what would it look like to move back home with my parents? This is the Broker Lord Podcast, where we help brokers become landlords. If you're a real estate agent and you have the desire to add rental income to your real estate fees, this is your show. My name's Derek Walchak, and I'm on the hunt to find one broker in each state who's made the transition to ownership. That broker could own one property or they could own a thousand. I want to understand how do they find their first deal? How do they structure it? How did they source their equity? And what advice do they have to those who are just starting out? So whether you're an experienced broker just starting to build your real estate portfolio, a student, or you just stumbled onto this podcast, I am glad you are here. We're not going to get too technical. We'll keep it pretty high level, and I'll try to explain things that you might not understand. So stick around. The Broken Lord Podcast is brought to you by the commercial real estate professionals at Shannon Walchak. Currently, Shannon Walchak is seeking unanchored retail strip centers in growing metro markets in the South and Midwest. With $75 million in buying power, Shannon Walchak is ready to close on the right properties. The ideal centers are between 10 and 40,000 square feet, are located in affluent neighborhoods, have a high concentration of service and food tenants, and can be bought at a seven cap or better. Do you have a center that fits this profile? Then Derek Walchak wants to talk to you. Email dw at shanwalt.com. That's dw at s-h-a-n. W-A-L-T dot com. On today's show, we're starting in Alabama, which makes sense alphabetically. And it also happens to be my home. I've selected Lynn Shannon to be the first of 50 interviewees. And I chose him not just because he's my business partner over 20 years or because he's been in and out of over 200 deals. But Lynn is truly the avatar for the show. He was my mentor and still is. And he drove home the point to me that I had to start buying real estate at an early age to build wealth. As brokers, we all trade time for fees. And those fees can be huge, but it is a hamster wheel we have to keep running. Ownership, if done right, can provide some freedom. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lynn Shannon. All right, uh, so tell me about yourself. My name is Lynn Shannon. I'm a partner in a firm called Shannon Walchek. Uh, we have four partners. I have three amazing kids, and I get to do what I love every day, and that is to try to find investment opportunities. Sounds good. <laughs> it's a good life. That's good. That's good. Um, how long did you know, Lynn, that you wanted to do commercial real estate? You know, it's interesting. I, I knew I liked real estate when I was 10. Um, my, my brother and I worked in our yard um, every Saturday. Um, I always liked the feeling at the end of the day that you improve the land, you improve the house, you did some kind of project that made the real estate better. So I knew very early, early age I would do something around improving real estate. And probably when I was 13, that's when I knew I really liked investment real estate. Uh, my father uh, bought a house down the street uh, and turned it into a rental and um, my brother and I were the yard people, the maintenance people, the gutter cleaners. And uh, we would work on that house about every other weekend. And it never really was work to me because I always thought, this is cool. This is our house. And so I knew then that I really wanted to, to own multiple properties, really, when I was a teenager. 
So how did you get started in formally in your real estate career? Um, so during high school, um, I love reading the home magazines. I would go to the grocery store with my parents and I would grab the magazine. I would look through every page and see what things were worth. And then next month, try to predict what the houses would sell for. I just was always interested in that. So when I was, uh, after my freshman year at Auburn, um, you had to be 19 to get a real estate license. I took a real estate class over at Office Park and got my real estate license. And so my sophomore and junior years at Auburn, um, I sold student condos on the side. And then those summers, I landed a job with a very emerging, successful commercial real estate company in Birmingham. And really working with them, realized this is what I want to do. This, they were developing shopping centers and renovating office buildings. And it was that exposure to commercial that I said, look, residential is great, but I really love the analytical and investment side of commercial deals. So what was the name of that firm? Uh, Cooper and Grillier. And those two guys are still around. They're very successful. And um, yeah, I owe a lot to them. Once you graduated, where did your career take you? Uh, It was interesting. I graduated in 89, and um, some people were not born then, but if you were old enough to remember the Tax Reform Act of 86, decimated commercial real estate, particularly devalued real estate in terms of um, slowing down the inflow of investment capital and deals, uh, properties were devalued 20 to 40%. It pretty much bankrupted every S&L. The government created something called the Resolution Trust Corporation, or RTC, it was a terrible time to get in the business, and so I had a hard time finding a job. I did find a very uh, single, very successful uh, land broker that I worked with and ended up working with him for the next 16 years. So um, when you graduated, you went to work with this gentleman, um, and obviously you started your brokerage career formally at that, at that point. Uh, what, what kind of clients did you have? Um, I like calling on retailers. Um, I had Kinko's. I had rallies, just uh, different restaurant. Uh, independent restaurant people that were looking to expand. And I really gravitated toward the retail. I, did, I spent some time in industrial. And maybe I should have specialized in that, but it's really hot showing a warehouse in September at 95 degrees with a suit <laughs> on. It just was really no fun. Yeah. So I gravitated toward uh, retail. Why do you think you didn't do office? You know, office to me was very commoditized. It was standardized. It, it, there wasn't a lot of sex appeal for me. I liked the retail, the location, assemblage. And I guess because I was a customer of retail, it just sort of resonated with me more. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you were able to actually make the leap from brokerage to actually owning some real estate. Tell me about your first deal. I was currently representing mm-hmm. rallies. And gosh, this must have been 1990. And they wanted half an acre. 100 by 200 was a perfect site for them. And we couldn't find anything. And they were willing to pay about $400,000 for that dirt way back then. Wow. And we were in our sales meeting, and uh, Dean Nix talked about listing a property at a stress sale from a guy who was in trouble with IRS. And there was three years left on the lease, and it was 100 by 200 with a building on it, and the price was 270 And I remember thinking, gosh, that's a great piece of real estate, because if the tenant leaves, rallies will buy it. And so that was the first deal I put together. And... Um, Ended up owning it for the next 15 years. Ended up being good friends with the tenant and um, recently was a broker that sold it. Did you hear it? It's our first path to ownership. Lynn used real-time market information to his advantage. He had a client who was willing to pay up to $400,000 for half an acre. During the course of a sales meeting, he heard about a new listing for a building sitting on half an acre all for $270,000. A light bulb went off in his head when he put the two data points together and took advantage of this mispriced asset. How did you actually do the deal? 
Did you just use all of your cash to buy it? Did you bring in partners? How was a, a broker able to? I brought in um, my dad. Um, he was sort of the front guy. And then uh, he and I and the uh, Billy Eister I'd worked with at the beginning, the three of us owned it. And this was the good old days. This is when you could, if, it, if the property appraised for enough, you could get 100% financing if the guarantee strength was strong enough. So the three of us went in and we put no money down and bought it because the property appraised for so much more. The property was basically devalued because it had an old lease on it. And so um, that probably was the marking of some of my first deals is identifying great properties in good areas that couldn't have the price appreciation because the tenants sort of uh, suppressed the value because of the low rent. This is a touch tone at Shannon Walchak. The idea that leases can artificially inflate or deflate the value of the real estate. And the real estate practitioner has to have the wisdom to know which is occurring. Brand new leases typically done in peak market cycles will inflate the value of the real estate. A lot of times they'll have tenant allowance built into it. And that's baked into the rent. Uh, but when you know recessions come, prices reset and you eventually find the base, the bottom line for the property. Where is the rent settling out? Conversely, if you've owned a shopping center for 20 or 30 years, a lot of times you don't have the, the need to push the rents because you didn't overpay for it. And so therefore, if you find an older building or an older center, you'll have rents that probably are below market. And that can deflate the value of the real estate artificially when the real estate actually, if it was at market rent, would be worth more. And so if you can find a center like that, that's where you can grab some value. So what kind of cash flow did you have at the beginning? Do you remember? It was a 10 cap. So I imagine, of course, interest rates, we did that deal and the interest rates were 10. And about 18 months later, we refinanced it to 8%. And I remember thinking, That's, this is so cheap. And um, I'm, I'm guessing it was probably a 10% cash on cash. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, after that deal happened. Of course, happened, there was no equity. So the cash on cash, I think we probably made 10% on it. Yeah. So when you did that deal, did you have expectations of many more deals to come? Or did you think that might be a one-off? What was what were you thinking at the time? Um, I was hooked. I loved driving by the property. Just something about it. Mm-hmm. Working in an industry, knowing that it's like being a farmer. A farmer appreciates it much more when it's his crops versus your farm in somebody else's field. And so I knew then I, I loved to buy stuff. And so... Uh, I didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't be an investor, but I could be a broker and keep my eyes open for investment deals I'd like to put together. I started working with Lynn um, in 1996 as an intern. And uh, I remember you had me calling uh, for a bunch of comps for a project you were working on called Columbiana Crossing. Tell me about that deal. This was a vacant shopping center. It was an old Winn-Dixie on sort of a secondary road called Columbiana Road. It had been vacant for a long time. The lender had it. And being a broker, I'd learned from a friend that First Real Estate um, was looking. They were a large real estate company right behind Realty South. That They were looking for an office. And so we were able to talk to that principal, uh, Fred Elbrook Sr., and say, look, let's buy this center and put First Real Estate School and real estate office in it. Lynn came across an empty building, and he had the perfect tenant for it. This can be the most profitable deal profile that you'll come across. The building was deflated in value because there was no tenant. There's no cash flow. But Lynn had the right tenant for it. So this became a win-win for Lynn and his client. Lynn was able to, with his client, buy the building. created created the value with the tenant and the lease in place. Lynn was able to receive a brokerage fee, a sales fee, and some ownership in the building. Um, we needed another investor and a real big turning point 
in my career and really anybody's career is finding that that investor who trusts you. And obviously, it's very hard to do it when you don't have a track record. And uh, Gerald Chandler was uh, sharing office space, or we were sharing office space with him. He introduced us to a gentleman named Leo Pesher, who had just sold a uh, tax company and uh, had some funds. And so we hit it off, and Leo was my investor there. And he subsequently was my investor for the next 10 deals. And um, as long as I liked the deal and was in the game, he always signed for the debt and put the money in with me. And um, there were some deals he didn't even look at. He just trusted me. And so I really owe my career to Leo Pesher because he was that first investor for me. Do you recall if you knew you just inherently needed an investor or were you just talking about the deal and Gerald mentioned Leo or how, how did how did you source that? Or did it just kind of happen? It just sort of happened. Okay. Um, we needed a little bit of money down. You know, I threw my real estate commission in. Uh, the tenant who owned part of it with us put in some equity and Leo and I put in some equity. But not every deal goes to plan. And what's a great deal today may not look so good when there are dips in the economy. So how do successful brokers navigate these difficult times? Well, you roll up your sleeves, say a prayer, become best friends with your tenants and bankers, and work to help them be successful. How has uh, going through those various cycles affected the way that you see the world, and in particular, real estate investment? The property may work today, but you have to stress test it. Will this property work in a down cycle? And that generally means when the property is devalued by 20% to 30%, where does this, where does this property look like? Can you pay the rent? Um, in the old days, I would love to find properties where I could break even at 60% occupancy. So even if the property was 30% vacant or even 40, I could at least pay the bank. And so I think you just have to be mindful. You go in, you structure the deal so that when the cycle comes next year or five years, whenever it does, that that property is sort of insulated from um, the consequences of the cycle. And specifically going through, um, you know, the financial collapse that we went through in 08, 09, um, what are you doing differently that you weren't doing before that relative to underwriting deals and structuring loans? Being a broker, starting out, you're poor, and so you're trying to find deals you can borrow as much money as you can. Uh, I think today we're trying to put, you know, twenty five to thirty percent down on deals so that when the cycle comes, we're not upside down. Most commercial loans with local banks have five year resets, and so a lot of people would refinance or start the amortization over. They'll do another twenty five years, another twenty years. We try to continue the amortization we're on. So if we're doing a twenty year am, and in five years it comes up, we're going to do a fifteen year am. We're trying to get properties paid for. Uh, so that's a little bit different than early in my career. How many deals would you say you've been in and out of? Um, I'm counting. I'm trying to get an exact count. I'm probably around 194. So far. I'm trying to get to 200, but I can't. I, ha- I haven't thought of all the deals. Like, <laughs> I'll be asleep and think of one I forgot about. But best I can tell, um, 194. That's amazing. Tell me about a deal that you wish you had not done. Fortunately, I've not had very many deals that qualify for that. One deal that comes to mind is we were very successful in retenanting a shopping center. And sold it for a lot of money. We also, that shopping center was on a septic field. And in the process, we realized that septic field was a great out parcel. So we converted the center to sewer. And we're very shrewd that we created this, this out, free out parcel that we had. And so we decided to do a build a suit for a tenant. We built a building. We used their contractor. And um, the contractor basically walked from the job. And so we ended up having to finish it. It cost more money. And uh, we ended up having to sell it for the bank debt. So we basically you know, lost the out parcel. 
in its entirety, the whole deal was a great deal, but we had an opportunity to, to value or create value for this last piece of um, dirt, and we basically just had to give it away because um, the contractor um, that we had used was not sufficient enough to finish the job. Every broker has a story of the deal that went south, the contractor that couldn't deliver on time or the financing that fell through. That's just part of the real estate business. As much as we try to minimize problems, they're going to happen. Good brokers learn from their mistakes and move on. That's one of the reasons for the Broker Lord podcast. It's a way to learn from the best in the business so brokers everywhere can get better, make and keep more money. So what mistakes did you make there? I don't think anybody can recover from a bad contractor. The liens and everything, them walking from the site. I think I was probably 28 years old and and we probably should have gotten some other pricing. The property was paid for. This other group was putting cash in. It, it, it really had all the makings of a great deal. They were an existing business. Everything worked great. But you have to, you've got to use good vendors and good contractors. At what point did you ever feel most in danger as a company? When the market crashed in 08, and my dad was a lifelong banker at South Trust, and that was just an incredible bank. It, it, that was the stock to own from the previous 30 years. And when I basically saw that go down to almost nothing, I realized this was serious business. And, and my friends that were doing the same thing, we were doing in Atlanta who had planes and they were selling, moving, foreclosure. And I, and I told my, my uh, parents, it's sort of like being on a river on a log. You're safe, but all your other friends on the log are getting eaten by the alligators. And so it, I really had a thought at one time that, what would it look like to live, move back home with my parents? And, remember, and that was a thought. It's like, wow, if, if the banks called all the loans, there was no way um, I could ever repay all the loans. And so it is a thought you have, like, what we're in that market. And so we're very fortunate. We've maintained a 94% occupancy during that time. But you know, even with your properties full, the banks would reappraise it and they would you know, try to right size it and they would, you know, call you up and say, hey, you need to right size this loan. We need half a million dollars. And so I wasn't worried about any of them being foreclosed upon. I was more worried about the uh, the cash call that banks may enforce with their loan covenants. So what do you think uh, we did right during that time to help us to survive and then eventually actually thrive out of that, sort of bounce out of that recession? You know, we had great real estate at good corners. We had uh, multi-tenants. We weren't locked into one tenant like a movie gallery. We had the flexibility to move and be uh, nimble. And I think we also, while our current real estate was devalued, we bought a lot of stuff during that time. It was like a the candy store had a you know, 60% off sale. And so we were able to generate revenue and build our base by buying, really buying our way out of that recession. And we were able to buy some real estate that just wasn't available from the previous generation. You know, another thing I think that we did, we've always treated bankers like they're sort of our lifeblood. And so, you know, a lot of people had one relationship with a large lender um, that could loan them as much money as they could ever want. But if that one lender changed or was South Trust that was taken over by Wachovia, eventually taken over by Wells, and that relationship could change on a dime, and then all of a sudden you're SOL because you don't have the, the lending, and you now have an enemy sitting across the table from you. I think we had really, um, we had good relationships with lots of different banks. Um, and for whatever reason, we were, we were taken care of by them. You know, you paid your loans no matter what. If you had to go out and, you know, dig a hole that day to, to pay the bank, you did. And we were very fortunate. We've never not paid a bank over 28 years. I and mean, we've even during the down we paid every month. That was just sort of a principle we, I was taught at a very young age. 
What deal would you say are you most proud of? I think the deal I'm most proud of is in the middle of the recession, things were just terrible. Nobody was buying. A big box retail was a dirty word in 2010. Still is. Still is. And there was a vacant goodies across from the Hoover Galleria. And nobody would touch that box. The uh, original, it was, a, it was assessed for $5 million. The original construction cost with land was probably six. Okay, so let me break this down for you. The property Lynn is talking about is a former goodies box, about a 55,000 square foot box sitting across from the River Chase Galleria, which is one of the most visited shopping centers in the state. The property's on a six lane road in a highly desirable retail location. It has great visibility and a very high traffic count. The space seemed like a slam dunk, but in that moment in time, big box retail and the economy was faltering. So investors were skittish. Inherently in my gut, I knew that it was a great, it was a great location. It had interstate visibility. It was on 31 across from the gallery. And it, I just knew that somebody would show up. We decided to make an offer on it for $2 million. And sure enough, before we closed, we secured a, a bookstore concept from Books A Million. They signed a lease for about 70% of it. And so that investment really paid off. And then we ended up putting Tuesday morning and the rest of it. And so that was a deal. I guess I'm most proud of it because we took a risk and not really sure it was going to work. And it ended up working really well and blossoming. What would you tell yourself? And let's say you're looking at yourself and you're 25 years old, half your age, relative to the business. What would you tell yourself? I look back at my career and the thing I'm most thankful for, probably the most responsible for my success is giving to others. And that means giving outside the industry, but it also means giving to people around you, letting them in some deals. Um, mentoring them. And I think that's been my secret sauce. It's not my technique. It's not my, my organization or strategy. It is really considering others more important than yourself and trying to raise the bar for them too, so they can benefit from this great industry. And finally, you've seen lots of brokers in your life. What would you say are the, the habits of the very best of the best brokers? Why are those brokers successful? I think one thing, they have hunger. Yeah, I've seen so much talent fall and, and fail it's, it's the hunger and the consistency and the discipline. Uh, even the most successful brokers are still out there calling. And I think you just have to be around people and contacts. Those relationships are what it takes. And so I think you know, whether you're an office broker, medical broker, retail broker, it is all about relationships. And nobody is self-made. Everybody gets somewhere with the help of others. And you've got to develop the, the others. If you couldn't do real estate, for some reason you lose your real estate license right now and from now on, you can't do it. You can't be part of the industry. What business do you think you would get into? If I didn't have to make a lot of money, I would be a landscaper. I love it. Not that landscapers don't make a lot, but I just love being outside. I love improving land. Uh, maybe a site grader, site contractor. I just love moving <laughs> dirt and you know molding things like that. Very good. Thank you very much. At this point, I thought the interview was over, but Lynn had more he wanted to say. So let's call this postscript first steps towards owning real estate. All right. So advice I give to brokers uh, wanting to invest. I, first, I think you have to say you want to start doing this and then you have to be any, just as you go across your day, think about, is there an ownership opportunity? And what that looks like would be uh, you get all these blasts, these vacant buildings, you maybe take a step back and say, Hey, is there a tenant I know of that I can put in this building? Uh, and if you think you can, then you go tie the property up and put the tenant in you, and you buy it. Um, I think it's important at least early on, to set a goal that you want to be in two ownership deals and find an investor who's willing to let you be in the ownership deal with them. And then I, I love the old saying, when's the best time to plant trees? 
35 years ago? What's the second best time? You know, today. And so today is today. And so I would really encourage folks to set that goal of just owning two properties a year. And then the year later, maybe it's three. And I think you just have to start and start today. I agree with that. And I think the younger you are, the better. Usually these deals take 20, 25 years to pay off. And if you're in your young 20s and you could you could end up owning some real estate in your, in your early 40s, it's paid off. I mean, that's massive what that can mean. And I think the biggest advantage a broker has over any other investor is, let's say you're a wealthy doctor and you want to buy some property. You don't really know who's looking, whereas a broker can look at a vacant building as an investment where other people can't in that he might know a tenant looking for it. And so I think that is the advantage every broker that's listening um, has over every other investor is they can create value where other people can't because they can fill a vacancy and then stabilize the asset. It's almost like um, insider trading is completely legal. Yep. And actually beneficial to the economy because you kind of are the the oil in the system that makes everything smooth and, and connects and runs well. It really helps your client. We we had a, a situation where one of our brokers had a tenant looking. He wanted a special historic building. There's really nothing available at that moment, but there was a property for sale. Uh, but since they were a regional company, they didn't want to buy. And so we were able to serve his client better because we were able to buy the vacant building and then lease it to him. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Getting your free Broker Lord t-shirt is easy. Subscribe to the podcast and review it online. Then email us at Derek at BrokerLord.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at BrokerLord.com. Let us know your size and address and the t-shirt is yours. Supplies are limited, so get your t-shirt today. Every broker story is different, but the more you talk to the good ones, and I mean the really good ones, the pattern becomes clear. To get on top and stay there, you have to be in sync with the market. Almost an innate feeling of what is needed. You have to understand where are you in the real estate cycle. And you must maintain solid financial connections with investors and banks to give you the working capital to take advantage of those ownership opportunities. If you have questions, send an email to Derek at BrokerLord.com. That's Derek with five letters, D-E-R-E-K at BrokerLord.com. Again, a special thanks to our sponsor, Shannon Walchek, a commercial real estate firm that offers property management, brokerage, and real estate investments. Find us on the web at shanwalt.com. That's S-H-A-N-W-A-L-T.com. Hit that subscribe button and follow me as I talk to brokers in all 50 states. I promise you it will be worth your time if you're a broker, a student, or you just want some really good facts to throw out at your next cocktail party. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Derek Walchuk, and this is the Broker Lord Podcast.